There are many reasons Canadian cities and towns find themselves in a housing crisis. A lot of things had to go very badly to get us where we are now. But a major factor is that housing itself has become a big business, much more so than just a generation or two ago. Housing has become what some call financialized, where the housing units themselves become much more valuable than what the land they stand on originally cost or the price of the materials used to build them. They have become an engine for perpetually increasing profits, a source of investment expected to garner a big return. This expectation has thrown everything off balance, affected the price to buy or rent homes, and has turned the housing market into a modern-day gold rush. How did this happen? And how has financialization made it more difficult for everyday people to afford rent? This is The Overhead, Understanding Canada's Affordable Housing Crisis. special series, we examine approaches to reimagining the urban housing landscape in Canada to ensure everyone has access to a decent, affordable roof over their head. I'm Glenn Bowerman. Let's get into it. To begin, let's hear from Erica Sagert. Policy Manager with the BC Nonprofit Housing Association. Erica is involved in a number of research initiatives, including the Canadian Rental Housing Index and both the homeless and youth homeless counts for Metro Vancouver. We ask her to identify the extent of the problem when it comes to people affected by the financialization of housing. So Erica, I wanted to begin by uh, explaining to listeners about the Canadian Rental Housing Index, just very basically... uh, what is it? Uh, how did it come to be? And uh, yeah, we'll go from there. Yeah, for sure. So the Canadian Rental Housing Index is an interactive uh, web-based mapping tool that looks at the state of rental housing in Canada. It has about 800 different geographies that are included, and it really arose from our advocacy work here at BC Nonprofit Housing Association. We were looking to provide a little bit more information around rental housing in Canada to help inform kind of how we understand that part of the market. And our members who are nonprofit housing providers are really, you know, landlords to renters. So that that's really where it came from. And what kind of data can we find uh, on there? Currently, it's the 2021 long-form census data. There's been three iterations, so it's always updated as the census comes out. So yeah, right now it's 2021. Let's say I, I was looking for a, a home in Surrey, BC, and uh, I wanted to know a little bit about uh, you know what, what the landscape is there. Would that be something that I could use to make a, an informed decision? Yeah, you could for sure. Uh, It's interesting to think about using it as an actual renter. I think what you'd find is a lot of concerning data points. You might find that rents seem quite high given your income. The tool is really great at highlighting uh, the challenges that renters are facing. So from the perspective of someone who's looking to access housing, it's not really a listing where you can see what rentals are available, but rather it's a wonderful tool for showing the state of rental housing in a community and being able to use that 
advocate for yourself, say the local government or to the provincial government as well, just to really point out that there might be some gaps in the rental market in the community that you're looking for. This is ideally something that uh, any government can avail themselves of uh, at at multiple levels mm-hmm. and uh, hopefully kind of guide and inform policy initiatives. What, what kind of policy initiatives has this uh, rental index kind of helped inform or, or, or can inform? Because it's been around for uh, almost a decade now, yeah? Yes. Yeah, we've had a few iterations of it over the years. Um, I think it's it's really valuable at looking at sort of the number of units that are needed. So it's identifying households who are living in rental housing that is beyond their means. So it primarily focuses on the metrics of spending more than 30% or 50% of your income on rental housing. So households who are spending more than 30%, that's really telling us that, you know, you're spending more than is reasonable long-term to be spending on rental housing. So you might have an unexpected bill where you're then really struggling to pay for your rent. It's really a quality of life conversation for folks at that point. Um, You might not be able to afford extracurriculars for your children if you're spending so much on housing. And then when we're looking at 50% of spending on rent and utilities, then you're talking about being at risk of homelessness. So for a government, it's really helpful for understanding kind of who is a renter household who might be at risk of homelessness and therefore in need of a new unit and maybe not be able to move on kind of beyond um, their current situation, because it also looks at overcrowding and kind of major repairs in the rental market. So again, when you're looking at kind of the state of the rental sector, it's going to show you that there's quite a few households who are in situations that maybe need upgrading, but they're not able to move out of those units to somewhere better. And the landlords who own those units aren't able to upgrade them for whatever reason. Um, So it really points that tightness in the market. um, And it can be used by uh, really any level of government, We do advocacy for local and senior government, both provincial and and federally, Um, because like I said, it can really identify kind of where the gaps are for people and identify the true number of renters who are in situations that are not, you know, that are quite precarious in the long term. So if if you see something, uh, the index points out uh, a certain area that there is a a great discrepancy between what people are paying for their Mm -hmm. shelter and, and, uh, and what they're making, then a lot of questions could be asked of that, but that's maybe a place where people can start. Say that this this pocket, this neighborhood, this region is struggling and, and we need to find out why. Yeah, and that was one of really the major findings of this current iteration that you see is that, you know, rents have risen as much of, as a by one third. So really the gap between how quickly incomes are rising versus rents is a big deal. And it helps government to really focus in on some of those key challenges and start to plan um, units more effectively. And when you look at the data, what are some things that you pull away from it? Uh, It's really hard to be a renter in Canada. I think the numbers really in terms of sheer volume really stand out. We talk a lot about proportions. So we're looking at, you know, one third of renter households in Canada are spending more than 30% of their income on rent and utilities. But the number that stands out to me is 1.6 million renter households. So that's a significant number of people. And when we really started doing advocacy around this project, I think there's a lot of focus on, you know, folks ability to get into the ownership market, kind of how people 
people are struggling to pay for their mortgages and the debt loads of Canadians, which are all really important pieces to focus on. But when we think about the fact that renter households are making, you know, on average half of what an owner is making, it's really, really important to note that 1.6 million households number, right? That's a lot of households who are struggling to pay for their rent currently and are not in sustainable long-term situations. So yeah, it's been really valuable kind of for our advocacy on, on that piece. And it's the same again when we're looking at some of those quality of housing numbers. So, you know, 500,000 renter households are living in overcrowded conditions. So have more members of, of their households um, in kind of bedroom situations that maybe aren't sustainable long term. So you might be doubling up extra folks just to try and afford your rent. And same again with kind of in need of major repairs. So that's another indicator that comes to us from the census data. And we're looking at 7% of households, which is about 350,000 households across Canada who are in unit where there's foundation issues, there's kind of bigger pieces. It's not just that you maybe want to paint your walls and update your kitchen. You're in a unit which is in really low quality. So all of those things are really important to take note of. Obviously, the the census is a, is a valuable tool for researchers, policymakers, uh, or just people who want to stay informed, journalists like myself. But uh, it it can never tell the, the entire story. I, I'm wondering mm-hmm. in, in this sort of housing world where we're trying to get to the bottom of what's really a a national housing crisis. Pretty much every major city in in Canada and and a lot of uh, Mm -hmm. mid-sized to smaller cities are are struggling in some way. What kind of data are we not gathering, but we should be? And and, uh, how do we begin to even compile that? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think the census is great in a lot of ways. We like to see it as providing a bigger, a better understanding of, you know, kind of the full picture of the rental universe. You can look at there's some CMHC data that really looks at the purpose of the rental stock. The census is really good for showing everybody who's paying rent, kind of what's your situation, how much you're paying if you've been in a basement for 30 years or, you know, if you're in a, in a new build. But I think what's really missed in the census beyond it being kind of this baseline data point every five years, you know, we're talking about 2021 data. Sometimes people look at that and they say, oh, it's already out of date. We're in 2023. That information doesn't, you know, help me right now. It is very good as a baseline stat, but the kind of more real-time understanding of how folks are struggling with their housing, we do have good information on evictions now, but really, I'd say homelessness still continues to be an area where methods for data collection could really be improved. We have something in BC called the point of time counts, which take place across the country as well, which is really just the base level information that we can get about folks who are actively experiencing homelessness. So you're looking at a 24 hour snapshot in time. You're kind of told the minimum number of people. The data is gathered through individual one-on-one interviews with volunteers going out on the street and trying to use their best judgment on who to approach to ask to participate in the count. So we still just have a very limited understanding of folks who are experiencing homelessness in the various forms that it shows up. And it really particularly disadvantages groups who aren't, you know, how we understand someone to be visibly kind of obviously homeless. So women who might be couch surfing to stay safe because it's not safe for them to be on the streets, particularly women with children, family homelessness. And if you're outside of a major urban center, um, we know there's a lot of significant issues with homelessness um, in rural and remote communities. And some of these point in time count methods that we use and other methods for understanding, you know, the most acute 
version of the housing crisis that we have being homelessness just don't really cut it in those communities. So we kind of continue to have this really lack of an understanding of the true scope of the housing crisis here in Canada. And the census gives us one sense of it in terms of rental housing can be very effective for that, but there's certainly still gaps out there. I don't want to throw shade at any particular government or any particular level of government, but when it comes to things like homelessness data, I wonder if in some ways governments are reluctant to gather that themselves because uh, if they found out, uh, if the result was that there was a major crisis, then uh, they, they would uh, be compelled to act in some way. Is that a problem that you see in, in Canada? Yeah, I think definitely. I would say that's a big incentive for why we started this data project as well. I think people like to ignore renter households. They don't really think of them necessarily as a strong voting presence. And I don't want to say that that's every politician's rationale for making decisions around housing, but it's certainly something that we see, we saw as needing some support. We needed to provide that information. One of the pieces of this project that continues to surprise me is how valuable it's been for us to go to local governments and say, hey, there's actually 2,000 renter households in your community. And they're like, oh, we should probably think about them as a particular group of folks who have certain needs. So that gap is definitely there. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. That's, that's definitely something that's been happening for sure. And homelessness is kind of the most severe part of that. Um, I think we've seen approaches of moving people along, really creating cycles of trauma for folks experiencing homelessness, which is really hard to see. And it's hard to address because people don't necessarily understand the role that institutions and in our systems play in producing poverty and kind of keeping people in poverty and not offering the solutions that, that folks need to get housed and stay housed successfully. So in a way, there is an incentive not to truly understand that number. And particularly when it comes to hidden homelessness, it's just so difficult. It tends to be groups that take on that as a data collection project specifically to try and, you know, they're, say, serving clients that they know are experiencing hidden homelessness. Another great example would be youth um, who might be, you know, might maintain an expensive cell phone, might be showing up to school every day, but are privately experiencing homelessness. Those groups are easy to ignore, and it's easier to ignore a group than it is to truly address the problems that we're seeing. And again, really just um, acknowledge the role that government in general and our institutions can play in really producing that property. So we know financialization of housing is a growing concern, but how did it happen? And what are the mechanisms behind it? Dr. Nimoy Lewis and research assistant Dimitri Panu have been researching just that at Toronto Metropolitan University. They explain the types of private equity we see in the modern market and the physical and social impact this has on Black and other marginalized communities. I'm going to begin by something that's admittedly difficult because, uh, as you've said in, in your own writing, uh, Nimoy, that uh, this can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But uh, let's try and, and unpack what uh, what a financialized landlord is, uh, you know, in, in modern day Canadian cities. We typically define a financialized landlord based on on, you know, whether these landlords are uh, private equity firms, asset management firms, hedge funds, and uh, real estate investment trusts. But we'd also include insurance companies as well and public pension funds, largely because public pension funds provide asset, man uh, asset managers with the capital to manage their investments in the market. And so they would invest on behalf of the public pension fund. Just to 
remove a lot of the technicality with respect to what is a financialized landmark. Just to unpack the the real estate investment trust, uh, because that's a uh, something that you usually see as an acronym, but uh, seldom gets explained. So uh, a real estate investment trust could be um, a public or a private entity. Many of the folks in the public are aware of are are publicly traded REITs. So like a Rio Can REIT, which is more of like a retail REIT, but also invest in, I believe, industrial properties. But then you have a residential REIT, like a Canadian apartment, which is CAP REIT, uh, which is one of the largest private landlords in the market. And these are entities that allow retail investors like uh, myself and you to go on to a public stock exchange to uh, buy shares within these companies with the promise of delivering particular returns on the investments that's made. Now, as I understand it, uh, these financialized landlords, as you described, uh, have been buying up more and more of uh, the rental properties in cities like Toronto and most likely Montreal, Vancouver, anywhere where there's a housing crisis. How is this different from a model that we might have seen a generation ago? So very good question. So how is it different is one of the things that with these particular entities is the scale. So traditionally, you would have like mom and pop landlord that might own like you know, a multiplex unit, maybe with four units, and they might live in one of the units, or, you know, they might move out and then rent off uh, like four or five units. Or you might have a mom and pop landlord who's just renting out simply their basement. And the big difference is, is scale. With financialized landlords, it doesn't make economic or financial sense for them to just acquire a single property, largely because a lot of funds, the, the amount of funds that is required to even simply just to do research on the asset class in itself outweighs, you know, them from investing in one particular unit. So as such, they would rather figure out how can we do this at scale where we can buy um, entire portfolios. So like 500 to 1,000 units at a time. And as such, it's helping to exacerbate the affordability problems within a vast majority of our vulnerable communities um, because that's where a lot of the undervalued properties or underperforming properties are often located. Was there some sort of inciting incident that that caused this new model? Uh, you know, well, why wasn't this happening, say, 40 years ago? And, and why all of a sudden are, are these properties being snapped up in this way? Very good question. So one of the things that really like sparked the interest of a lot of these entities was in Ontario, I can speak more from Ontario, where you had during the mid 90s, you had the withdrawal of the federal government and then the provincial government from the housing business. And so that left a huge void in the market to where, you know, who is essentially providing and building purpose built rentals in the market. And as such, there were also changes to the tax code that essentially allow REITs to download or transfer a lot of the taxes on the capital gains to the unit holders themselves who buy shares into publicly traded REITs. The difficulty, however, is when these changes happen, I don't think the government had in mind that these companies would all of a sudden buy up huge swaths of properties across the country. 
but essentially there were also changes to the residential tenancy act especially here in ontario where in 1997 uh, we had the introduction of vacancy decontrol and above guideline rental increases so vacancy decontrol uh, essentially allows a landlord to uh, charge whatever the market can bear upon turnover and while AGIs allow landlord to download the expenditure costs or any capital investment made into property to be transferred onto the renter and where the landlord can, if approved, the landlord can increase the rent to a maximum of 9% spread out over three years, not inclusive of the annual provincial guideline increase. So it essentially created a very lucrative environment for uh, these entities to take advantage of the policy changes that were made in the market, but also take advantage of the fact that the government had gotten out of the housing business. And as such, a lot of these entities got into the market, started to buy undervalued or underperforming properties and make investments in them to help provide upgrades to compete with the private condo market. And so with the research that you both have been doing on this kind of financialization, what was the central question that you were hoping to answer? So I think one of the central questions that we were trying to answer is to have a better understanding of how these particular actors were influencing the lived experiences of Black renters in major urban centers across this country, more specifically in the Toronto market. And part of the reason for this was there was a study done by the Wellesley Institute back in, I believe it was released back in 2020, if I believe, which detailed that Black Canadians were twice as likely to experience an eviction than any other group in the city. But the story sort of stops right there. And so we know very little about some of the challenges that home, uh, renters are facing in order to remain housed in this city? And what are the sacrifices then that folks are making in order to remain housed? Are folks, you know, foregoing meals? Are folks, you know, uh, reducing their grocery bills or relying extensively on food banks in order to supplement whatever income that they don't have in order to afford some of these items? And I think there was a story to tell. Um, and there's a story to tell in terms of for us to better understand the challenges and unique experiences that Black renters are facing. Considering based on the 2016 census, Black renters were the second most rent burden group and where just under 40% of the Black renter population in Toronto was spending more than 30% of their household income on shelter. So I, I understand you, you kind of had two areas of focus uh, for this kind of impact. One was on the physical infrastructure, uh, and then one was more broadly the the impact on what some people call social geography, uh, the, the impact on on the black community in Toronto and people who relied on these these rental apartments just to to have a place in the city. So I don't know if uh, if it's a holistic thing you have to talk about one and the other at the same time, or you can take them one by one. But uh, what did you find? So interesting enough. I grew up in the little Jamaica community, just uh, in the west end of the city along Eglinton West. And over the years, we saw, uh, I began, you know, to see significant changes that were happening within the community. So in 2007, where former mayor David Miller announced the inception of the Eglinton Cross Online, 
folks in the community were very excited to have in a transit line that would run directly through the heart of the community, which would essentially, you know, provide us with access east and west of the city uh, in the central most parts of the city. And we were all excited. Uh, businesses were all excited as well about the opportunity to essentially open their businesses to a much wider market because of the greater accessibility that's in the community. However, we know the story about the Eglinton LRT and its extensive delays and, you know, and, you know, the major disruptions that it's caused in the, the community. But the one thing that is missing from the story that we're not speaking about is the violence of infrastructure investment and where infrastructure investment is acting as an anchor to attract the likes of developers and attract the likes of asset management firms, private equity firms, firms who would otherwise not have considered this community a prime target for investment without uh, the investment made by the government in the public infrastructure. And part of that is we see that the infrastructure is acting not only as an anchor, but as a beacon of safety to capital that, you know, we have this major investment here and that, you know, other investments are going to follow. And so what we saw happening was we saw particular entities that were acquiring a large number of the purpose-built rentals apartments in, in the area. But these were unlike our traditional types of mom and pop landlords. Uh, some of these names included like Starlight Investments. Some of these names included Timber Creek uh, Capital, which is now uh, rebranded as Hazelview Investment which are all asset management firms, firms that we had no recognition of who they are and what does an asset manager do? And then we later found that for a lot of the properties that they were buying, they were making you know, cosmetic investments into these properties and essentially trying to capture that untapped value that's within the assets, meaning that, or put differently, uh, close the rent gap that exists within these properties by charging much higher rents close to uh, close to what's being demanded by the market or above market prices. And so for one particular property that we found uh, that was actually jointly owned by the Wall Street Goliath and Starlight. And so the Wall Street Goliath is Blackstone Group, which is one of the world's largest, if not the largest private equity firm in the world, acquiring properties in this community who would otherwise, they would not have considered acquiring properties in this community. Um, so they've acquired, I believe, two or three apartments in the neighborhood jointly with Starlight Investment. And for one of the properties that they acquired, we saw when they acquired the property, I believe back in 2019, we studied the rents in these properties and we found that rents have increased by 62% since their acquisition. And think about the fact that income is not increasing at the same pace as the cost of shelter. So we were particularly interested in understanding how this was impacting low to moderate income households, but more specifically folks uh, who are either on social assistance, who their income is fixed, and then folks, you know, and more, uh, and more concerning, our seniors who are on a fixed income in from their pensions. And it's not like someone at 77 years old can just go out and, you know, get another job and, you know, try to uh, supplement whatever the income that they're not able to capture from their pension 
in order to pay their rent. So it, it, it does uh, beg, you know, one to be more concerned about how this is impacting some of our folks of the elderly population. I guess we're talking about gentrification, essentially. But uh, I imagine that the the ultimate result of this w- would be displacement. It's, it's interesting that you use the word displacement and gentrification. For me, I don't necessarily think that those terms have the utility to capture the gravity of the violence and the issues that are, are taking shape in some of these communities. I would rather borrow a term used from one of my intellectual mentors, a geographer, Ananya Roy, and where she would describe this as more of a banishment that is happening. And the reason why I say the term banishment has greater utility to describe the scope of the violence that is happening in communities like Little Jamaica and the Jane and Finch community is because it helps us to foreground the role of the state itself and brings into focus how the state has been complicit in creating the environment for entities of the such that I, I mentioned earlier to behave the way that they're behaving. And when we think about the term displacement, it gives us the idea that we can just go down the street and move into the next park. But that next apartment might be owned by either the same landlord or different financialized landlords who are also engaged in the same practice. So as such, these landlords are, you know, are causing folks to be expelled and banished from major urban centers in Canada and are leaving the city. And this means that they're having to travel further for work. So they're spending less time with their family. And, you know, we know about, you know, the challenges and the pressures then that places on like single parents in terms of childcare. If you don't have that assistance within the new neighborhoods that you've moved, you relocated to outside of the city. And so uh, we need to be concerned of the fact that we are essentially helping to create more income polarized cities in where only the wealthy can afford to live in major urban centers like Toronto. I mean, we don't like to talk about this kind of thing too much uh, in certain urbanist circles because people want and need more housing. So we, everyone says, we've got to build more housing and, and we need better higher order transit, that kind of thing. Were you able to, to find recommendations where you can kind of balance the two things, where you can build more housing, provide this physical infrastructure without banishing people, as you say? I think that there is. I, I, I think one of the things that, you know, I've mentioned, I believe folks in infrastructure at the federal government has talked about is including an affordability ordinance within, you know, these investments to ensure that the housing that's being built in and around these major infrastructural projects are housing that is, you know, affordable and to ensure that we're not making investments that in a sense helps to kickstart uh, a process of banishment in communities. I think the inclusionary zoning plan is, is a good initial step, you know, in where we can ensure that yes, if development is going to happen in the communities, but that we can require developers to have a higher percentage of units that are designated affordable and not just affordable based on 
defining affordability based on area market rent, which I don't agree with because if we if we all can agree that area market rent is unaffordable, then why are we basing our definition on something that is unaffordable? So even if you put 80 or 90% of area market rent, it's still vastly unaffordable for a large number of folks and especially for some of the most vulnerable segments of our population. So as such, I think that affordability should be defined based on income, based on the after-tax income that I have in my pocket to be able to, to pay for shelter. I think that's one of the things that we should be focusing on. I know that the city also has a mural program, which is allows nonprofits and uh, of the likes to acquire multifamily properties within their communities uh, to help compete with uh, the likes of private equity firms who are buying up a lot of these properties. The difficulty is that I believe the current budget for that program is, I think, around, I think it's about 20, 20 million or 24 million or 22 million, which is not very substantial in comparison to other municipalities like Vancouver, where it's in the ranges of 100 million and 150 million, uh, which allows you to buy a lot more units as opposed to the current program. I know that Olivia Chow has, has mentioned uh, that she would be increasing those funds uh, year over year, but you know it, it remains to be seen. You know what that looks like and how many units that that the city can assist. You know nonprofits, community land trusts, co-ops, and nonprofit developers to acquire. Yeah, uh, and Dimitri, uh, we we haven't heard from you, but uh, what was your role in this this research? So my role in this project started with cleaning four years of uh, eviction filing data for the city of Toronto from the period of 2018 until 2021. Um, so that was just about 63,000 eviction filings, basically. This is just the city of Toronto. Uh, so like North York, former borough of York, Scarborough, Etobicoke, Toronto, East York. Yeah, and so after we clean it all and assign the uh, who we to the best of our ability, believe are the true owners and their landlord categories, then we can start to do analysis. We can look at, okay, so financialized landlords here account for, I think it was just under 40% of eviction filings in that period. Um, and we can see not only how much they account for, but we can look at specific geographies and we can see where, you know, where they might be filing evictions at a greater rate. And what we can also see is you know, what type of eviction uh, eviction filings. And something that we found in our research was that financialized landlords uh, are filing about 80% of their filings are for L1 evictions, and that's non-payment of rent. That statistic on its own may not mean so much, but when you compare it to the types of filings for other landlords, so let's say like an individual acting in their own capacities, when we look at all of those filings, we can see that evictions for non-payment of rent were significantly lower. So we can see that it was around, I think, maybe 50 or 60%. So about 20, a good 20% lower than the rate of non-payment of rent eviction filings by financialized landlords. So we can see that financialized landlords are evicting more people for non-payment of rent. And through some of our research and interviews with tenant legal clinic lawyers, we we heard information about like, 
you know, financialized landlords, some of these companies, you know, they're filing evictions very quickly. So, you know, you, you may fall behind on your rent a day or two or be, you know, even a couple of hundred dollars short on your rent and an immediate eviction notice is filed. Also, you know, we have for all of these evictions in that period in the city, we can see which buildings and which communities are experiencing the greatest rate of eviction filings. And what we consistently saw was that I think it was the top 10 buildings that experienced the highest filing of evictions were also within what we would consider to be black communities, you know, and these are areas where the dissemination areas, so smaller geographic unit and where the black population is over 50%, 60%, sometimes even 75% black. So that's, that's the, the evictions work that I did. And then we also did work on cleaning up uh, all of the apartment building transactions. So that is any apartment, multifamily apartment building that's sold. Uh, so that's a building that is over four units um, that sold between 1999 and 2022 within the city of Toronto. So we cleaned up that data as well and assigned the true purchaser. And, you know, that is really important. And, and you know, one of the things when we talk about financialized landlords, you know, often they'll use subsidiary companies um, and numbered companies to make the purchases. And so that when we don't know who the true owner is, we can't really understand the full scope and the gravity of not only how many units they own, but how many evictions they're filing, how many AGIs they're filing. Um, so through our different real estate softwares and even through using corporate searches, we are able to obtain who are the true owners and get a better understanding of, you know, their impacts on the rental market and specifically their impacts on the housing ecosystem within black neighborhoods in the city of Toronto. And and another thing that we came across was a lot of the conversation kind of focuses on the impact that real estate investment trusts are having on the market. We're not disputing that real estate investment trusts are definitely exacerbating issues of affordability in the city. What we did find was that asset management firms, so companies like Starlight, Timber Creek, now Hazelview, Conundrum Capital Corporation, Sightline Group, these companies actually accounted for a significantly larger share of apartment units purchased within that period of 1999 to 2022. So in terms of what what does that look like in terms of numbers, asset managers purchased almost 90,000 units and REITs only purchased just over 16,500. To sum up, Dr. Lewis, uh, what's ideally the next step for this kind of investigation? I think the next step from this is really, I think, two things. I think it's one is the dissemination of this research into communities, like tenant groups and tenant organizations, you know, tenant unions. I'm thinking that this research would be highly beneficial for those that are working on the ground to resist this sort of violence and to resist these sort of actors that are infiltrating their communities, but also, you know, displacing them from their communities. So I think that uh, for me, I think that this research focuses on trying to aid these entities that are operating on the ground where research is not their their strong suit and more of like the activism work. And, And it's not to say that the work that we're doing is not activism as well, but I think it's really to empower those to be in control of the futures that they would like to see for their communities. And, and also to help to empower and to justify 
these unreasonable rental increases that we see happening in the communities to help them to fight back, but then to also inform the state itself of their role in all of this, but also to how can we create more targeted policies that actually help you know, address this housing emergency that we have going on across this country. Chloé Saint-Hilaire, PhD candidate at the University of Waterloo, is similarly researching where housing is financialized in Montreal, Quebec, who owns what, and who is impacted the most. How did you go about tracking the extent of financialization in Montreal? Basically, what we tried to do in Montreal, because you had access to so much data, was to use it to be able to track financialize in order to provide an exhaustive portrait. Uh, so what we did with Michael Brunilla and David Waxmith is that we did web scraping, which is basically you writing code to tell a machine, well, go find me information and put it in a database. So then what we did is that the city of Montreal has a website called the Property Assessment Database. And what we did is we wrote a web scrape to be able to look at every property in Montreal and get its information and then aggregate it in a database. And then we had all the name of the landlords in that database. So we did manual searches, investigative searches. And then we also did a web scrape of the business registry in Quebec where it gives all the shareholder information of the companies. And we did some corporate networks with that. And then we went into looking at whether these companies were financialized or not, um, either if they were involved in financial markets, such as a pension fund or a private equity firm, or if they were indirectly sold through being an asset manager, for example, or being um, publicly listed. I understand it can be kind of opaque to, to find out who exactly owns a property, who, who the landlord is. And so I guess that, that was the real challenge. It was a challenge. And we were, uh, out of everything we had in Montreal, we were kind of lucky because it's not something you could do everywhere. For uh, other geographies, for example, you couldn't reproduce a web scrape to go look at all the property information of the owners in the city. So I think of the city of Toronto where that wouldn't be reproducible. And we saw it in the news this this week through the Toronto Star article of how difficult it is to get ownership information. So you either have to go to the office or do some form of arrangement with MPAC or TerraNet to be able to access it. So it's not it's not publicly available. It's never available at an aggregated format. And sometimes it's even paywalled. So you would have to pay to access every single property information of every single building. So that's extremely expensive. And uh, I imagine for various reasons, the financialized landlords themselves wouldn't especially like that information public if they could avoid it. Exactly. And even if it's public for financialized landlords over time, uh, most of the time their ownership structure are like shareholder structure or investment structure where you would know that, for example, CapReit is your landlord, but you would not necessarily know who are all the shareholders that hold shares that, that are expecting returns from CapReit. So it becomes more and more opaque, even, even because the corporate structures are much more intricate that you would expect from a person or a single company owning a single building. Now, as I understand it, once you found all the information that you needed, you, you found that there were two types of financialized rental ownership. Can, can you explain the two types? Yeah, so basically what we wanted to do when we had all the information about the landlords and whether they were financialized or not, we first wanted to uh, do some 
some regression analyses. So it's pretty common in research where we would ask, are there, there uh, links between the percentage of financialized ownership and the census tract? So the, the area we were looking at and other variables. So we saw there was a, a strong positive correlation between the percentage of financialized landlords and the percentage of households that were uh, living in higher density building, so high density areas. And then there was also a strong correlation with renters' housing stress. So the more the renters were housing stressed in the census tract, the more there was a propensity of having financialized landlord in the same census tract. And just to define uh, renters' housing stress is when renters spend more than 30% of their incomes on their rent. So then we did that profile, and then it gave us also spatially two types of population that were more exposed to financialized landlords in Montreal. So the first one we called precarious student financialized because it was... This financialization was in census tracts that had a lot of immigrant population, a lot of visible minority population. They had, on average, much lower uh, household incomes than the city of Montreal. And there was also a lot of students. So this was the first geography where there was a lot of financialized landlord. And the second geography was a more affluent population where there was a lot of uh, new uh, construction, uh, condominiums, uh, mostly white population with the highest levels of rent in the city and also the newest buildings. So it was more of um, a different financialization than the first, uh, the first population. Is it possible at this time and through your research to establish a causal link between the rate of financialization and the rate of of renter stress? Well, we found a correlation between the, the presence of financialized landlords and the uh, amount of housing stress in the census tract. Our study was not a temporal study, so it's hard to say if there are more and more acquisitions, are the rents going higher or are uh, tenants with lower incomes more targeted and therefore the, the rent increases made a big difference for them. We see through other studies, such as uh, the ones done by Dr. Martin August, that financialized landlords adopt strategies that are harmful to tenants that aim at making either higher revenues or at lowering costs. And usually that's always put on the tenants. Um, and we see through, through their activities that they are acquiring more and more. And we are hoping to publish some, some studies in Toronto specifically that show that this, these acquisitions come with higher level of rents because from the financialized landlords. And how can cities or urban planners use the insights from this research? Uh, as you say, uh, you can't necessarily gather the data that you've gathered everywhere in the same way using the same methodologies, but uh, presumably, uh, you know, the, the findings uh, can be understood in, in cities all over Canada and probably North America. Yeah, for sure. That's a great question. So when we wrote our paper, we really wanted to to show how unequal rental housing market information was. So on the one side, tenants are becoming bigger, they're becoming more consolidated, they have more capacities to, to gain information on you, and they literally know where you live. And on the other side, it's really hard for researchers, for tenants, for housing organizers to know who the landlords are, and it's becoming even more complicated because of all these complex ownership structures, these big partnerships, and these investors that come from all over the world, right? And um, so 
what we wanted to show was that there are information available to the municipalities, available to the governments, they're public information, and yet they are camouflaged under a paywall or they're just not accessible. And we really believe that information about ownership of housing, but also corporate ownership should be publicly available. So at least we are capable of understanding the extent to which financialization or other phenomenon are present in our cities and what the impacts are on the build form, but most importantly on our tenants. But right now we see that all this information is usually not available. Chloe, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Of course. Thank you for inviting me. We know that financialization drives up the price of housing. We know this impacts black and marginalized people more. And we know that this new type of landlord actively seeks out neighborhoods where people can least afford an increase in rent to try to make a profit. As we heard, it can be difficult to even uncover who or what group of people or corporate entity actually owns these properties. But each of the researchers we've heard from are helping to bring clarity to the landscape. However, what individuals, and more importantly, governments at every level, do with that information, knowing the harms financialization causes, is the next step in creating a balanced supply of housing. Thank you for listening to The Overhead. This podcast is a co-production of Spacing Radio and the Balanced Supply of Housing Node. The node is bridging gaps between research evidence and housing outcomes so everyone in Canada is able to access adequate housing and shelter in our neighbourhoods and communities. The Balanced Supply of Housing node is part of the Collaborative Housing Research Network, a joint initiative between the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. This podcast was produced by myself, Glenn Bowerman, and Neil Hinchley. Original music composed by Neil Hinchley. Thank you to Tara Fernando for production assistance. On the next episode of The Overhead, community land trusts are expanding across Canada. Music